Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Food Lovers Elective, where we discuss food on and beyond the dinner table. The Food Lovers Elective is a program of the Center for Regional Agriculture, Food, and Transformation, or CRAFT, at Chatham University's Fox School of Sustainability and the Environment. CRAFT's mission is to foster a transformative regional food system that is equitable, sustainable, and inclusive in Western Pennsylvania and beyond. My name is Katie Ruther, and today I'll be joined by Tai Nguyen, the founder and executive director of Kaizen Food Rescue. Following the war in Vietnam, Tai came to the United States with her family as a refugee in 1980 after going through four refugee camps in Southeast Asia. Tai is the founder and executive director of Kaizen Food Rescue, which is the only refugee-created and led nonprofit food access organization in Colorado. Through Kaizen, Tai distributed over 11 million pounds of fresh food to thousands of families in 93 zip codes. As a former refugee from Vietnam, Tai brings her passion about food justice and food apartheid to local community by serving on the Denver Sustainable Food Policy Council, Jefferson County Food Policy Council, and Mile High Farmers. When Tai is not fighting food insecurity, you can find her outdoors with her three beautiful children and two rescue puppies. So to get us started today, I was wondering if you could first introduce yourself and then share a little bit about what inspired you to start Kaizen Food Rescue. Sure. My name is Tai Nguyen. I'm the founder and executive director of Kaizen Food Rescue. My pronouns are she, her, and G. G just means sister or sis in Vietnamese. Um, what started off was uh, me volunteering with my children's school. It was a newer um, public charter Montessori school where they are still building out a cafeteria. And to this day, they actually don't have a cafeteria. So what a group, what we did was like gathered a group of parents or moms and try to figure out how can we provide fresh produce so that the children can work on prepping their lunches the day before that it's all a part of the Montessori pedagogy to like make your own breakfast and lunch. So um, we wrote an application to Food Bank of the Rockies. And from there, another mom got approved, went through, you know, the gauntlet of trying to um, get more access to like just fresh food. Uh, they have a really large fresh food center. And that's what we were trying to go after. We were only giving uh, fresh produce and veggies to kids and you know, limited amount of sugary fruit. But um, we did this for about a few months. And finally, I volunteered to actually go down to the warehouse to pick up the food in like this Astro van. And I was so shocked by all the amount of food. If we didn't pick it up or any other partnership organization didn't pick up the fresh food, it would get composted and just go to waste. So it's like, in one sense, it's in this food system where there's so much surplus, so much waste going on, and we're trying to figure out what else can we do. And, um, you know, my brain started churning, like, okay, we can salvage all this. And um, I kept begging them, like, please don't throw this away. We'll totally take it. Just set it aside for us. And, um, you know, at that time, I didn't have my own like nonprofit yet and that just started the spiral of me creating 
um, a nonprofit. And in 2019, March of 2019, we received our IRS uh, letter of determination to become, um, you know, a 501c3. From there, we applied to be a partnership agency with Food Bank of the Rockies. Um, they are, you know, a part of Feeding America. So they're backed by them and many other large corporations throughout the state and nationally. So we waited for, you know, our check-in process with them and it took about six to eight weeks. But I think in July, we started our first pop-up food share and um, it was intense because, you know, I don't have access to a van or anything. So we like pretty much borrowed people's vehicles to just go out to Food Bank of the Rockies, pull as much as we can. We only have 20 minutes to shop and we have it down at this point to pull at least two to three pallets of food in 20 minutes. It's kind of like a game. Since then, we're now one of the largest distributors for uh, Food Bank of the Rockies. A year to date, we distributed over 11 million pounds of food already to pretty much BIPOC communities, anyone who's, you know, facing nutrition insecurity and are looking to, you know, have this life hack of just free access to food as well. So we try to present it that way to limit the shame around getting help, getting free food. We tell people, if you don't take this, it's going to go to waste. And so it triggers this, um, it's already working in a scarcity mindset, but in an alternative way so that people can feel that they're actually helping, you know, the environment, the planet, and on top of everything else, they're saving up to $200 worth of food per week if they come to one food share from us. So I'm sure that number is higher now, but um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how we got started and we're still here. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. So you talked about incorporating as a nonprofit, and I'm curious if that was something that you knew you wanted to do from the beginning, or if you could talk a little bit more about the process of establishing and developing the organization and what that was like. Sure. So I did it because the form requires you to become a nonprofit in order to be a partnership agency with Food Bank of the Rockies. And I looked into it. I went back to um, this community college because they have a business center where you can just go in and, you know, ask questions with all these different profs. And they helped me out a lot. And they just gave me this form, like, here's what the steps you need to do. And I just followed it and created our bylaws like temporary bylaws, um, because it was very lawyer-esque or attorney speak, all the legal stuff um, that didn't necessarily fit into like what we were trying to do. Later on, we made amendments to it. But um, learning that process was very interesting because I came from a Fortune 500 company prior to, you know, starting working again, but also I was a stay-at-home mom for several years as well. So I was in like this interesting crux of um, motherhood and trying to find a new career for myself because I can't go back to what I was doing back in California. And um, 
it's just really interesting because there's a lot of paperwork <laughs> involved and just waiting. There's a lot of waiting. You know, you're waiting for your certificate of good standing with the state. You're waiting for the state revenue exemption form, all these forms that I'm waiting for so that they can show that we are actually a legit organization, even though we're just winging it most of the time. And um, yeah, I think from there, we just progress to try to figure out, okay, I guess I need a formal email address. So we went through Bluehost and I asked around from other nonprofit organizations who I actually look up to, which is Boulder Food Rescue and Denver Food Rescue. And they actually had like this form of like what you need to do and then modify it to your needs. So their organization, they pick up via bike and trikes and, you know, their cargo. So they bike around to pick up all the food from different um, grocery stores, whereas we partner with Food Bank of the Rockies to do that for us because we don't have capacity um, to have our volunteers pick up. And in essence, our community members are also those who are picking up food from us. So it's going to be pretty laborious for them to also carry that load. So we really push Food Bank of the Rockies to service us in a way that's quite unique. And it changed a lot of what they do now with the types of food they provide for us, in addition to just working with us to scale up where we service. Um, you know, I call it food apartheid spaces where, um, you know, there's just people who don't have access to healthy, nutritious food. And we try to bring the food to where they are within the neighborhood. And, you know, people walk over, bike over, or drive their cars, depending on um, their mode of transportation. And during the height of the pandemic, I feel like a lot of people like the fact that we pivot to a mobile market, but that it was more so like a drive-through market. And um, each site is pretty much autonomous where we partner with other nonprofit organizations. And they um, kind of manage to location with the volunteers there. So it's pretty place-based. And from there, they um, let me know what they want, um, what they need. And I try to provide all that for them through, you know, the grants that we get and also any type of other funding um, community members want to throw down on, you know, when each person give just $1 or change. That's what we ask. Like if you want to donate your change in the car or a dollar, um, it all adds up to becoming like over $300. So um, in essence, each day we're like giving out food to anywhere from 250 to 300 families. Wow, that's great. I would love to go back to the guiding values of the organization and have you talk a little bit more about how you develop those guiding values. So specifically participatory governance, radical inclusivity, power with, not power over, and accountable solidarity. Yeah, so these bylaws were from a co-op template. 
And when I first read it, I just thought, this is us. This is what we should be doing. And from there, I didn't know the actual terminology for the work that we already do um, with the community. Because, um, you know, rather than me dictating everything, I actually ask everybody and get a vote, like what we should do and how we should move forward in a sense where everyone has their input and their voices are uplifted in the process of us just, uh, you know, using the Kaizen methodology of incremental change of improvement and applying it into our work. And with this process, uh, you know, we do participatory governance where everyone just tells us, like, if there's changes that needs to be made, just reach out. We'll talk about it. We'll have community listening sessions. And from there, we tweak our work around that. Um, you know, we apply uh, participatory models into like grant writing. People would tell me we will have a community listening session and I'll, you know, read to them what the grant requirement is, but then ask them what they want to focus on rather than me just writing a random grant asking for general ops, which is important, but you know, if they wanted to initiate some other idea that, that they have, you know, we try to put it into the grant and make it known that this is a community ask, not an organizational ask. Um, also with participatory budgeting, um, how we break that down is like, we put the shell up and let people know this is how much this grant is for. Um, here's admin overhead, 10% indirect costs. Um, we can apply to the grant, but then really the nuts and bolts is determined by community members. And when I say community members, there are actually people who are facing food insecurity and or are working to change it. And um, we really try to lift those who are interested in creating change in the food system. So that's also like applying to the power with, not power over, because um, that's just, you know, how I really work is like, I just try to garner everyone's input as much as possible. And the way we uh, include people is very interesting because I didn't realize it wasn't normal in the charity work. They call it charity. I hate that. But um, the work that we do, you know, we when we don't have volunteers, we just ask people in the car line, hey, you want to step out for about 30, 45 minutes and help us while other volunteers come out? So like... From that point, we noticed that, you know, everyone, like 99% of the people would help if you just ask them, you know, in their language. Um, so that's how we pull a lot of volunteers. And we actually turn away, like, corporate volunteers um, to avoid the whole white saverism, even though, like, the intention isn't that but it's viewed that way from the end user and recipient of our um, food. Cause it's like, Oh, another white person is trying to help us. Like 
you know, um, that's the common thought process of all that. But like, I feel that people have intrinsic knowledge of knowing how to help themselves. And then it's just a matter of figuring out how do we reactivate their dormant leadership skills to be an advocate for themselves, for their community, for their families. And um, yeah, that's falls in line with like accountability, solidarity, and just, um, you know, fostering the relationship of solidarity, reciprocity, what that may look like is very different for each individual. And I feel that we try to incorporate every element we can. Um, but, you know, everyone in our communities know that, you know, we try to move in this most intentional, visceral way as possible. And um, if people only knew that they hold so much power, I wish like we could make, we could move mountains, you know, with the work that we do. Yeah, I mean, you touched on so many things there. You touched on labor, on funding, on governance. Um, and so I'd love to revisit some of those topics in a bit. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious if we could go back to the beginning again and think about how you started the organization. It sounded like you did it very much yourself in a lot of ways, but also you were collaborating too from the beginning and reaching out to organizations and building partnerships. I'm curious how you found your board members and what the process of kind of trying to figure out what the, the character of the organization was going to be and what guiding principles you were really going to adopt, I guess. Yeah, great question. Um, so before I started Kaizen, I actually went to a speaker session held by Chinook Fund. And from there, I actually first learned about social justice, Black liberation, and Indigenous sovereignty. And after that speaker session, I became a part of their giving project, um, you know, fall 2018 cohort. And that's when I learned about Colorado's racist history and um, more learned more deeply about social justice, philanthropy, um, Black liberation, and Indigenous sovereignty. So those concepts are actually interwoven into the work that we do. I did create this um, by myself, but also I couldn't have done this without our volunteers. You know, people keep saying like, you know, I'm, I am Kaizen. I'm like, yeah, it's only me, still only me. But we do have an army of volunteers who like are pretty much our ride or die. And our board members, you know, they were first our volunteers. We would just ask them, hey, you want to help us? So we have um, other BIPOC members in the community helping us and Indigenous elder um, we have another Asian elder and um, Aleka Mayer. She's she moved out to Boulder now, so like we're trying to figure out how to do meetings. Um, that's about an hour away from us, so um, we're trying to find a medium point to do our quarterly meetings, and it's been interesting. <laughs> but um, 
you know, everyone, I believe that, you know, the people who are most impacted by the work should be leading the work. And we hold true to that by having our board members who have or had experienced food, nutrition, and security, and are looking to change that, um, be a part of our work in a more impactful way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit more about the namesake of the organization, the Kaizen methodology, and how you decided to adopt that? Yeah, um, Kaizen's actually two Japanese words, Kai and Zen. Um, basically, it means change for the better. And um, it's a lean methodology that Toyota uses um, at their corporation with their manufacturing work where it breaks down the hierarchy. Anyone within the company can give input for improvement, you know, no matter your title or anything like that. So we basically use the same um, modality into what we do and blend it in every day. Mm-hmm. Have there been limitations to the method that you found in the work that you're doing? No, because I think everyone's always trying to constantly improve what they do, whether they notice or not. Um, We do the same, whether intentionally or unintentionally, every day. Um, So I feel like it's a natural occurring process that people don't necessarily take into account. And I, I also feel that it's part of like our ancestral wisdom It's our innate ability to always wanting to constantly improve any and everything we do. Yeah, related to that, I am wondering if you can talk about your methods of incorporating feedback into the organization, um, how you determine success in, in the work that you're doing, and kind of how you evaluate your success. Sure. So with feedback, um, during check-in, there's a last question for folks, um, like what other resources they need or what other types of food they would like to see us provide. And we, um, you know, each day we go through that Google Doc form and analyze the (laughs) answers and try to figure out, okay, a lot of people voted on X, Y, Z. So let's try to have this in the following week. And we do that only when we're actually able to um, fund more food. And unfortunately, a lot of food grants are going away. So we try to like purchase what we can. And people understand that um, we work in a space within our capacity. Um, And we also have one-on-one discussions. I actually, uh, for quite a few years, I was the check-in person. So I spoke to everybody (laughs) and just, you know, talk to them, you know, they're humans. And um, we just from there figure out like what people truly want and need. And we'll pivot to having providing that resources. Or if we don't have the resources, we actually partner up with other organizations to do the outreach Um, because, you know, we're not experts in all the other fields. We're just trying to focus on food. And um, kind of like SNAP outreach, uh, we have that. The local libraries would come out and have like children's book, free literature for young adults as well. 
um, you know, other orgs with the public health would come out with the mental health services or even um, uh, what's this group? Benefits in Action. They came out to provide their services, which is full list of services that they have available. And then we also do um, voter outreach. So it's a lot of like different elements, um, ways that we try to truly engage community members and having community listening sessions each month and meeting people where they are in essence and just going with the flow from there. And for evaluation, um, you know, the way I define success is like, as long as we're getting food in the hands of people and they're eating it, that's a success for me, you know? I really don't care about the numbers. Um, I tally them up by the end of the, the month and then the year, and then I'm like, oh, we did that, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's always uh, interesting how nonprofits evaluate each other where I'm more of just freestanding and just thinking, oh, we're doing great because someone just got fresh produce from the farmer. <laughs> you know, it's it might not seem like great evaluation work. I know we need to improve on it, but uh, I'm working with a Catch a Fire volunteer also to evaluate our um, youth and children education program that we do around farming and gardening in urban areas and um so it's really cute. She did different smiley faces because we work uh, with, you know, younger kids and youth and you don't want them having to write a long survey. So we get these little happy face surveys or a sad face. Um, and then what else we do is because the state actually requires us to do a lot of evaluations and we actually take those evaluations and get it interpreted in different languages and then finally administer those. We pretty much rely on those valuations as well. So it's like, I feel like there's two each year depending on the grant. And pretty much if I'm required based on our con contract to administer a survey, I'll do it. Other than that, I feel like we're already you know, fully engaged with our community members. I don't think we need to like go overboard on surveying them, you know, gets to a point where they're like, can we just stop? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think that is a great point that you're bringing up because in the nonprofit management class that I have been taking, we've been having a lot of discussion around evaluation and the measures of success that are attached to grants and uh, how difficult it can often be when there are so many intangible measures of success, I guess, or just really no ways to measure the success of something that you're seeing on the ground. And so I think that's always something that I'm interested in talking to nonprofit leaders about and how they're, they're looking at evaluation in that sense too. Yeah, um, what I found out, like based on the type of foundation, they either want, you know, qualitative, more qualitative than quantitative. And for me personally, I feel qualitative is more important. 
Yeah, I think that's certainly a consensus that we've come to as a class as well, that there's so much left out by just focusing purely on quantitative measures. So I guess related to funding, we can kind of jump into that a little bit more now that we've talked about evaluation, but could you tell me a bit more about where your funding comes from and what the process looks like for applying for funding, what factors you might take into consideration when seeking or applying for funding? Sure. So we don't have a game plan around grants, but more so... When there's a grant that has the word food in there or COVID relief, we just go after it because the way nonprofit industrial complex works around funding is asked backwards to me coming from a Fortune 500 company. I'm just like, what's going on here? How do I pay myself? (laughs) You know, so it's just uh, figuring all that out. And, you know, for the first two years, I didn't. I wasn't a grant writer, um, I, therefore I didn't get paid for the first two years, but we figured out how to do it with other um, nonprofits that were helping me out. Because I'm like, you know, if I don't know anything in these like emergency food task force meetings, I would just blurt it out or put it in the chat. Like, hey, how do you do X, Y, Z? Can someone help me? And it's really amazing the community members or community we have out here in Colorado and the food system, they're always willing to help, especially with me, because I'll tell them I know nothing. I'm building this right now and I'm winging it all the way. And so um, funding, it's very interesting that it comes from government foundations, individual donors, online donors, and also cash donations. But then um, what a lot of times we didn't actually, for our first tax uh, return, I actually didn't include, because I didn't know how, um, in-kind donations and valuing that. And that projected us into the millions because of the food donation is like worth, in the beginning, it was like $1.74 per pound is the market value worth, but now it's up to $3.47. So you multiply that by 11 million, it's insane. But then, um, you know, what I didn't do with uh, government grants, like USDA grants, I didn't put the value of, um, you know, our volunteers' time into our grant. So this has been all a learning curve. And um, it makes it the grant stronger if you put all the in-kind um, amount as well. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't know we're doing like 75,000 for, you know, volunteer hours. Like, it was amazing. Like, why didn't anyone teach me this? <laughs> so, um, so it's been a great learning curve. Um, I'm better at grants now, but at this point, it's just copy and paste. And um, I used to actually pull in uh, folks from Upwork freelance writers. So it's really interesting to work with uh, different people in different states and trying to figure out like learning how to write a government grant versus a foundational grant where foundational grants, you're more, you can ad lib more so or be philosophical (laughs) if you want. Whereas like the USD grants are more technical and 
um, they told me, you just answer the question. I'm like, okay. They're like, literally just rewrite the question and make it into the answer. I'm like, oh, okay. And they're like, it's very formulaic and that's all you need to do. You don't have to fluff it up. And I'm like, but they're like, no buts. I'm like, okay. So I have a lot of different other um, EDs from organizations that we partner with, like look over my grants and they're like, what the hell, Ty? (laughs) But, you know, I'm better now. So it's all good. We've been pulling in a lot of good grants. So I'm happy with that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm curious too, when you're looking for grants, it sounds like you're kind of not in a position to be picky about what you're applying for. So I'm wondering if there are any parameters that you set around grants that you might apply for in terms of like the work that they typically are funding or like if it's a foundation, like who the foundation is composed of or their history or like guiding principles or like how you incorporate that into your decision making about applying for funding. We fortunately work with really great foundations um you know they understand the historical inequities for grassroots BIPOC organizations so in that sense it's really nice but we're at the limb of applying to each and every grant that's open and try to figure out does it apply to us how do we tweak it to make it apply for us and unfortunately what do we need to change with our work to make it apply which I hate because I'm like, I can't expand anymore. It's just me. And, um, you know, with healthy, for example, Healthy Food for Denver Kids grant, um, they were trying to focus more on like the early child, child care ages zero to five. Um, so we ended up doing like nutrition classes, gardening classes before we wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for the grant, but I'm glad we did because, you know, my children were involved in it. So um, it's kind of nice in that sense, but also it created like this interesting network of other food system um, organizations as well. So um, hindsight, it was a good thing that we applied for it. You know, I'm learning so much with like their contractors that they bring on to learn to do learning series as well, because that's what I've been requesting from a lot of these organizations. Like, hey, do you do technical assistance? If so, can you help us? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess related to that, if you could tell potential funders about your organization or if you could somehow change the funding landscape, how would you change it to kind of better recognize the needs that you have as a small BIPOC-run organization? Oh, this is an ongoing question. Um, So I've been telling foundations to, well, in our grant reports that they should actually fund folks that are, that they know and have funded in the past the work that we're doing. If you're focusing, like if your grant's focusing on like purchasing from local farmers or underserved local farmers, give it to the BIPOC orgs. 
that does work in food systems. Like it only makes sense, you know, create this circular economy for everybody. Um, we push back a lot um, when we don't get funding as well. So uh, I'm not afraid to go back to the grant manager and ask why we only receive partial funding when we actually requested the full funding. And with all the, you know, um, matrix that they're trying to have us hit like these specific goals, like the funding doesn't equate to what you want us to do. So you have to give us more money. And um, most of the time it works, other time it won't because of like the pool of funding that's available by like whichever tax that occurred for that proposition. Um, so it's understandable, but in other instances, it's like, this isn't, they all know it's not equitable for smaller organizations. And how do we change that when we're up against the government, you know? So it's really interesting. We can only like voice so much in every report and everything we do in every meeting. And hopefully things will slowly change. Um, I wish it was more quickly because I'm super impatient. <laughs> but um, the way I see it is like hopefully moving forward, like these organizations will take that into consideration and just change up what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I keep hearing you talk about is all of the work that you are putting in personally as one of the the point people in the organization. And I would really like to hear your approach to preventing burnout and how you take care of yourself and also just ensure that others who are involved with the organization also can sustain the work that you're doing. Oh my gosh, it's hard. Uh, Work-life balance and family. Um, I have three kids. Um, my partner hates me working overtime all the time but you know I have insomnia so um, that factors into a lot of what I do I'll take care of operations during the day and meetings and during the evenings after my kids are asleep I work on like the admin side of stuff that I need to do um, it's been almost four years it's not sustainable um, I received my first uh, self-care grant from the Women's Foundation and also from Colorado Health Foundation. So they're like, take a vacay. I'm like, how do you do that? Because uh, I try to take breaks on the weekends because my family actually gave me an ultimatum to like stop working on the weekends and hang out with us. And I'm like, okay. Um, and when I do, it's like they're on, some of them are on their devices. I'm like, let's go rock climbing. So like I try to take my family out outdoors a lot because you know we live in Colorado right now it's snowboarding season <laughs> but um my kiddos are whining about it being too cold so I'm like oh let's go to the climbing gym so I've been doing a lot of blaying for the kids even though like I'm not getting to climb I'm like can't you just go into childcare so I can just climb a little bit <laughs> but um I've been trying to teach them bouldering so We've been bouldering so I can have a turn rather than just being on the ropes with them. Um, I do a lot of meditation in the morning and during the evening or whenever my kids are trying to get me to watch a cartoon movie or something, I'll sit there with my malas and meditate rather than paying attention. Um, 
I try to exercise more. I used to do it a lot, um, but since having Kaizen, you know, um, I started to schedule out time for me, which I feel is very important. Um, I learned more about self-care at um, this Brick Fun event with Denver Foundation. Um, it was like a learning series of executives of color and the subject topic was, you know, self-care and how to do that for us. And we really need to be intentional about doing that and just having um, like listening sessions with other EDs of color was very helpful because we do take on a lot more than most um, with the work that we do. Um, I think that you know, beer and wine has helped me a lot, unfortunately. Um, you know, uh, out here in Colorado, there's so many breweries. So I made it a goal to like at least try different ones at different breweries. There's like hundreds of them. Uh, I know that's a bad path, but <laughs> I got to like chill out somehow, um, you know, get away from it all. But like, you know, my dining room, half of my dining room is like my workstation at this point. Um, we're building out Loretto Heights until, you know, uh, it's like a two year construction project. Uh, we bought a, in partnership with Commune and Sheridan Rising Together for Equity, we bought part of a old university. So the student union building um, is where we're gonna have like this co-op or free grocery store. I call it the little bodega. Community members will probably change that name. Um, they always do with everything. <laughs> I like let them vote. I'm like, well, you pick a name. <laughs> it moves in a different direction. But um, I think that taking back time, like time for yourself, would be where I need to focus more on. Um, you know, I'm trying to move everything into boxes back here and uh, hopefully take it to a different site and not have it in my home What is the priority. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm really glad that you mentioned your identity as an ED who's female identifying and also a person of color and wondering if you can talk a little bit more about your experience there and the unique challenges or advantages you see yourself having. Um, the challenges was like initially when I started this out, um, going into all these different meetings and all these different legislators and people from like different government agencies are in this meeting. And I just felt like I had imposter syndrome, honestly. Um, I didn't feel like I was welcome. Initially, I wasn't welcome in certain spaces. And it was hard for me to speak up. Um, I would just write things in the chat box. And that's how I felt I got my message across. And then it got to a point where these different foundations were telling me, you're doing such great work. You need to speak up. You need to not be silent in these meetings because they feel like I have all these great ideas. And then finally I had the courage to start like speaking up more and 
not even caring if I drop F-bombs and stuff like that. So it's to the point now where I'm pretty much comfortable in these like white spaces. Um, but, you know, I've asked for, you know, to do a BIPOC caucus just so that, um, you know, we have our own space and talk about different things. And that's when I join um, the Black and Brown Farmers Collective um, or Growers Collective. And then I partner with other BIPOC farmers um, and just started working with other orgs that's really mission and vision aligned or values aligned with us and, you know, support other farmers in that way and nonprofits in that way. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering now, or I'd like to maybe shift to some bigger picture questions about the organization and its place in the larger ecosystem of food access organizations and nonprofits specifically. So in some ways, food access organizations enable or perpetuate the system they're trying to respond to and counteract. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on this and how you see Kaizen within the larger movement for food justice. Yeah, so it's a really interesting space. When I first started out, I was just seeing how, like, how are we supporting our local farmers? And if we know all the stats and what USDA did to the BIPOC community, why aren't we creating actionable steps to change that? And as a protocol for us, our organization is like we first support BIPOC organizations and farmers with our funding. And a large percentage would go to them in procuring and supporting their business. And um, we work to probably provide over 60% of any grant that we get towards this initiative of we consider it as like a form of reparations like what does that look like for us within our capacity what can we do and that's you know supporting black and brown farmers and um with that you know people saw us in 2020 what we were doing we weren't we were forced even though we were forced by one county to purchase from food um cisco which i advocated deeply to not do that and support local farmers through all that hot mess. I think people understood. And then in 2021, you started seeing more grants around supporting local farmers, only purchasing from producers and ranchers out here. And I took it to another level and just supported the BIPOC folks. Um, and, and from there, we kind of became like this organization everyone was looking at us for guidance around um, supporting people who like being culturally responsive. And we actually asked Food Bank of the Rockies to start providing food that our community members want and eat because a lot of times we are working with refugees, immigrants, undocumented people, and they don't want canned goods or anything like that we don't give that out I try not to even though sometimes we do get it but um you know we're trying to provide people with healthy food personally I believe food should be free for all but 
with the way I work in food systems, they're like, well, it needs to be accessible. I'm like, okay, fine. Um, so I had to change our MO um, around that um, just because, you know, I work in a weird area where there's so much surplus and it's all going away. So we don't take it. And then, um, you know, but and also another sense of like supporting our local economy by supporting our local farmers and producers. And what does that look like for us? So that's how we're moving in spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To go a little bit broader now to the nonprofit industrial complex, which you had mentioned earlier, how do you see yourself fitting into or existing outside of the nonprofit industrial complex? Ooh, that's a big question. Um, this year, I focus more on advocacy and learning about it, learning about leg- our legislation, pushing for, um, you know, different bills. Last year, was it last year or a year before? Um, we worked with Frontline Farming and Project Protect Farm Workers and commune um, with regards to um, the Farm Workers Bill of Rights here in Colorado. So we were a part of that and that got, you know, my toe dabbled into that realm and how we noticed that in order to actually move everything and how everything's interconnected, we actually have to work with policy members and you know our local council members and learning how our government works. So what our community did, we started creating food systems or food justice um, development training, leadership training for our community members And the idea around that is to actually build up our knowledge, you know, build up tools so that we can go into these meeting spaces that's not designed for us and just take over. (laughs) So uh, we went through a six-week training program with um, Family Leadership Institute um, that's a part of Colorado State University Extension Program. And um, we partnered with them to do the facilitation training. And we worked with local um, public health, um, Denver Public Health and Jefferson County Public Health to come in and just do a workshop on um, food systems and food justice. But with those courses and workshops, we flipped it to create a language justice protocol where the dominant language would be conducted by the facilitator. So it was mostly Spanish. And we had interpretation for a few people who needed English. And um, it was like me and one other person, pretty much. And it was kind of cool doing that and building this up. So now we're like reaching out to different foundations to make that pilot program because it was pretty successful and uh, launch it for a five-year period. And from there, it'll be like a three-tier system where eventually the last tier is having one of our community members run for public office. So in a grander sense, we're looking at, at a more holistic level of building people up for their development 
And, you know, they may or may not be interested in food systems, but they'll be equipped with this knowledge of empowerment and, you know, striving to create a more equitable, fair and just, you know, work that our local government is trying to do. Um, You know, it's creating these access points for folks who don't even realize they have so much power. So in that sense, we're trying to attack food justice in that way. Um, But also, you know, I'm in um, this uh, Colorado Refugee Speakers Bureau where I'm also learning how to use my voice, empowering myself to speak up about, you know, immigration reform, which affects me and my community a lot, Um, of course, food, but also I'm a part of um, the Colorado Water um, Fellowship. So Young National Young Farmers Coalition um, created this really cool program. So I'm learning a lot about water, water rights in Colorado and you know the effects of that and and with the wave of climate chaos happening with us you know i feel like even though i'm starting so late i but i think like learning from the starting point will help me like work in the grander scheme of things to push things forward yeah a lot of amazing work being done there one thing that i I keep hearing you talk about too is all of the collaborations that you have and partnerships. And I would love to hear a little bit more about how you connect with people and forage all of the diverse partnerships that you have as an organization and individually too, as, as a person. Yeah. A lot of our work is pretty much word of mouth. Um, but I met, uh, Andrea Savage, who is the co-founder of Commune Denver, and um, we were classmates, so we've always like helped each other out. Um, she volunteered at our little bodega um, before the pandemic, and so we got to know each other then. And then when the height of the pandemic started, we just shifted our work, and you know, community members are asking for food, and she initiated we expand and so we did and we created um, mobile pop-up food shares i think at that point there were six it grew to 12 to 18 and now we're down to eight so we fluctuate based on community requests um each day we work with different um groups so we have um you know our food um partnerships which is food bank of the rockies and other local farmers, um, Minoru Farm. We work with Frontline Farming, East Denver Food Hub at this moment. Oh, and Sugar Moon Mushrooms. And so on Mondays, that's who we're with. And the lead site manager is actually from Montbello Walks. So that's in Montbello, um, North, wait. Yeah, Northeast uh, Denver area. So that area is truly a food apartheid area. They don't have a grocery store. And they're looking to build a Costco. 
On Tuesdays, we work with local community members in the Sheridan border of Denver and also, um, I think it's Sheridan, City of Sheridan. There's all these other subsidies that we have. Um, but each day we work with two or three um, different partners and you know their site managers would lead the site and um, it just grows from there. And we have hubs. So our Friday location, we actually works with seven other Asian churches. Um, Wednesday, we work with the Islamic Center um, a few of them, and then a synagogue. Yeah, so it's really interesting who comes to us to, you know, just pick up food for their community members. And there's a lot of different community fridges out here as well. So they have their volunteers pick up what they want to reload in the community fridge, which is cool. Wow. Okay, well, to finish up here, could you speak a little bit to some of the hardest things that might be to implement and practice based on your core values and principles? Um, I would say radical inclusivity because of, you know, the 10 to 12 languages or different languages we work with is so hard trying to find, you know, um, language justice and interpretation services that would meet all of my community needs. We work with a lot of different um, Southeast Asian communities and Pacific Islanders and different Polynesian islands and not like every language is represented here in Denver. So we have to find like an alternative method to communicating with families. And a lot of times what that looks like is talking, speaking with their children because their children's more acclimated to living in the United States. They know English or some English and they can interpret back. It's the same situation that I was in when I first came to America as well. Like I was, you know, really young age interpreting like all these government paperwork for my parents. So that's same thing is happening there. But then I'm actually able to reach out to the Asian Pacific Development Center and work with them to see if they have um, community navigators that speak in a specific language. Um, and also working with FEMA, um, trying to get them to get other languages that I don't have access to, um, to help with you know interpretation services as well. Um, I think that's the main challenge is like, you know, I'm trying to bring in other Southeast Asian farmers. I know they're farmers. They've like spoke to me about being a farmer back in their homeland, but coming to the States, they don't have land access. Um, you know, the community gardens out here, it's not enough. And if there is a space, you know, there's the issue of transportation because a lot of our refugees walk. They don't, um, they don't ride the bus. They don't um, have vehicles. And if they do, you know, they're at the limb of like their family member's schedule. Yeah, that's a big one for sure. I guess finally here, what kinds of changes would you like to implement at an organizational level in the future? Um, 
I'm hoping to scale out and bring on more youth who are interested in working in food systems and develop a fellowship program or training so where they can build up their skills to take over parts of Kaizen, like the operation and kind of like different departments within a corporation. I see like the youth leading a lot of our work. Um, you know, they if they're interested in finance, they could learn about that development, grant writing, or even, um, you know, what it looks like working with farmers, building out our own farms and food forests. What does that look like? Um, we have a few other initiatives in place. Um, we're even taking care of our um, solar cooler that we have and also finishing building out our vertical farms. We have a shell of a shipping container to do that work. So there's like all these different elements that I feel like the youth can take on and we can pay them to, you know, do this work as well, only if they're interested. Um, we actually try to do that with um, undocumented community members, and we actually ran into issues about paying them because of the IRS isn't, you know, really letting us do that. Um, and how do we actually create, you know, economic and financial stability for folks who are most underserved and under-resourced? So those are also our challenges, but I really see the youth taking over Kaizen and I can eventually retire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and to hear more about the organization. I'm so impressed by all the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed this conversation as well. That wraps up my conversation with Ty Wynn, founder and executive director of Kaizen Food Rescue based in Denver, Colorado. I really appreciate Ty taking the time to speak with me because I think she gives us an important look into not only the current issues impacting the nonprofit sector, but also the ways in which she's offering an alternative model to the dominant nonprofit industrial complex. Of course, there are only so many things a small organization like Kaizen can do, especially when much of that work is put on the shoulders of one person. But I think that the work Ty is doing really underscores the importance of a community-centered approach that rests on the idea of interdependence. She shows us what participatory governance can look like in action and some of the ways we can build power and make change at both the individual and community level. Thanks so much for joining me today for this episode of the Food Lovers Elective.